Well, those are such uh, beautiful words, and it's been such a joy this evening already, hasn't it, just to be here, to be singing God's praise, to be hearing this uplifting singing as well. And as we come to hear God's word now, let's pray that this will be an uplifting experience and a very much a high point in the service. So let's pray. Our God and our Father, we ask now that you will comprehensively challenge us through the truth of your living word. Please fill our minds with truth and fill our hearts with praise and fill our lives by your Holy Spirit's power to live as those who have been bought with a price, honouring you. So Lord, would you help us in these moments, both in preaching and in hearing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a basic science experiment which some of you may have tried. All you need is a torch in the one hand and a glass prism in the other and what you do is you shine the colourless torchlight directly to the prism and as the same light emerges from the far side of the prism something spectacular happens because the previously pallid light emerges from the other side, now transformed into glorious technicolor. And it shines forth with resplendent rainbow glory. Now, I mention this image for a very specific reason. Because, as James has already said, tonight we're beginning a new series which is focusing on the love of God. We've entitled it, Aspects of Love. And over these next five weeks, we're going to be considering the five aspects that James mentioned. And yet, if truth be told, to a great many people today, the love of God is a rather colourless and drab affair. It is a grey subject. It holds little interest to them and it displays little beauty for them. And one of the reasons I think this is the case, it's maybe not the only reason, is that such people have simply not viewed the love of God through the appropriate prism. Which in Christian terms, of course, is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The place where he died for our sins and where he spilled his own blood that we might be saved. That is where we see the love of God demonstrated and fully displayed in its technicolor glory. And so over these next five weeks we're going to be admiring five particular colors, as it were, 
of the rainbow of God's love as it shines through the prism of the cross where Jesus gave himself for us. Now, it's my privilege to preach, as James said, on the first of these. Uh, and this particular colour in the rainbow is what we call redemption. And I'd like us to begin our reflections tonight by reading together two verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, This sermon tonight you'll find is more of a topical sermon, but I do hope it will be a biblical topical sermon. And I wanted just to pick a couple of verses that you can tuck away into your minds this week, perhaps meditate on these as you reflect back on the sermons, and I hope you do try to do that at some point during the week. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing here to Christians in the city of Corinth. Actually, he's writing to them in this section about their sexual conduct. And the truth that he brings to bear upon this is redemption. Listen to this, verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's particularly the middle phrase I want us just to pick up out of that text. You were bought with a price. What is redemption? Redemption, very simply, is to be bought at a price. And I'd like to just unpack this a little bit more. Just expand on what this means. And I'm going to give you three headings just to hang your thoughts on, to tighten your grip on the sense and the significance of redemption. So here is the first heading, a slavery shared. Sure, it's not hard for anyone here to think about the concept of slavery. Maybe you watched the uh, recent film, Amazing Grace, and you saw in there some images of slavery from 200 years ago. Or maybe you've just been reading in the newspapers, and even if it's not first-hand experience, you read there of human trafficking in the 21st century. Uh, Some one million people, so we are told, are bought and sold in the Western world in 2007. And yet it is this very idea that lies at the backdrop of redemption all these hundreds of years ago, thousands of years, when the Bible was written. Because you see, what we are redeemed from is slavery. If redemption is the solution, then slavery is the problem which redemption solves. And what the Bible teaches is that there is essentially two forms of slavery. You may know, if you have read the Bible at all, that the, the Bible is split into two halves. There's the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. And as we consider particularly the Old Testament, generally speaking, and this is just a generalization, the emphasis falls upon physical slavery. If you just were to open your Bible to the book of Genesis and just start reading through the first 80 chapters or so, the first two books, you would find there slavery again and again. Uh, You would meet individuals 
two were slaves. As early as Genesis chapter 16, you would bump into Hagar. Uh, Hagar was a slave of Abraham. And then at the end of the book of Genesis, there's a very famous example of slavery because, of course, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And what is more, as you continue into even the book of Exodus, you discover slavery on a grand scale. In fact, the, the book of Exodus, in a sense, is just one enormous story of a whole nation in slavery who are miraculously redeemed. This is just the first two books of the Bible. This isn't to mention, of course, the rest of the books of the law and the historical writings and the wisdom books and the Psalms and even in the prophets where we frequently find reference to slaves. It was a very common reality. In biblical times, it was a day of masters and slaves. In biblical times, it was a day of purchasing and selling people. And it was often a time, for many of them, of terrible maltreatment. And yet, as bad as this was, and still is today, I think it's pretty clear that the Bible ultimately condemns slavery, but even so, even in the Bible itself, we find that this is not the only form of slavery. In fact, it is not even the worst form. Again, if I may generalize, as we come into the New Testament, we discover that predominantly the emphasis falls upon spiritual slavery. Jesus once said in John chapter 8, verse 31, something that may surprise you. He said that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin is our tendency to deny God's love and to defy God's law and to go our own way. That's what sin is. And let's face it, all of us sin. None of us here tonight love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind all of the time. So we all sin. But, says Jesus, if we have sinned even once, we are slaves to sin. It's a rather shocking thing to say. Individually, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. I say this is shocking, incidentally, because this is not how many modern people think of themselves. They think of themselves as living in a free country, as having free speech, of having, to a great extent, freedom in their choices. But Jesus says, if you sin, you're a slave to that way of life of dishonouring God. And you also find as well in the New Testament a collective aspect to this slavery. We are together enslaved in sin. If uh, the logic flows from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and if we match that up with the fact that everyone who sins is a slave to sin, then the conclusion is obvious. We all must be slaves. The whole world is captive to sin. And it wouldn't be so bad if this was not such a terrible thing. But the Bible makes it very clear that sin is a terrible taskmaster. Do you know that sin pays wages? The wages of sin is death. We read in Romans 6 
23. You don't want to be a slave to sin. But let me ask you, let me just pause at this point in the sermon and ask you, are you a slave to sin tonight? Have you come to the point and the place where you recognize that this is true of yourself? That God's Word says that you, as a sinner, are a slave to that way of life. That you are completely incapable by yourself of living a life of freedom and as God intended. Well, that's the point that we have to get to. Maybe we need to open our eyes to see the subtle signs of slavery in our own experience. Some of you may have seen the film, The uh, Truman Show, from a few years back. Uh, Jim Carrey plays this man, Truman, whose whole world is a cage. And he doesn't know this, of course, but he's actually part of a TV show. And uh, people have been watching the events of his life in this enormous TV studio world, and they've been watching it right from his birth, through all his relationships, marriage, and so on. And the ironic thing is that Truman thinks he is free. And everyone else knows but him that he's a slave. It's only as he begins to scrutinize his life more closely that he sees the subtle signs that something is wrong, that in fact he is trapped in this world, and he begins to look for the exit. Some of us need to examine our lives and our world, not only the world around us, but in fact, what is within us. And to notice that something is wrong. There's a slavery to attitudes and behaviors that are wrong, even that we understand are wrong. And to realize that we're bound for a life of destruction, if that is the case. Now, here's the wonderful thing. If you're in this position and you're saying, well, what can I do about it? Well, that brings us to the second point. Because in one sense, actually, there's nothing that we can do about it. If you're a slave, by very definition, you are powerless. You are by very designation, helpless. And what you need, therefore, is for someone to come and free you. You need someone else to redeem you by way of a price paid. A price paid. Even in our day, we're familiar, aren't we, with this idea of a ransom price. Someone like Alan Johnson, who is taken into captivity, and then a ransom price is placed on his head. It's usually a price of money, but it isn't always that. And the question becomes, will anyone be willing to pay the price, to meet the high cost of setting them free? But you know, this is not a new idea once again. As far back as the Old Testament, there was this concept of a ransom price. And in fact, there were two main forms of ransom in the Old Testament. First of all, there was money. There was cash. Now, if the price was right, a rich person could buy someone out from their master, redeem them. So, for example, if you fell into enormous debt, in these days when you went into bankruptcy... It wasn't uh, just a, a case of someone coming to bail you out or having no cash to spend. You actually had to sell yourself 
into slavery. And so many people were slaves because they got into the red. And it may have been the case that as you fell into this situation, maybe a distant relative from somewhere else in Israel heard about it. Someone with a little bit of money. And they would come down and out of their own pocket and riches, they would pay the price to set you free. And in this case, money was sufficient to be the ransom price for freeing slaves. There was also another kind of ransom price in the Old Testament as well. You may recognize this. In the rest of the books of the law in the Old Testament, there's much spoken of the sacrificial system. And there the ransom price was the animal blood. Now this is related more to spiritual redemption. We see a little glimpse of it in the Old Testament. And what was happening here was that people recognized that there was a need for their human sin also to be covered. And so the ransom price was vamped up a little bit. This was not just the cash out of your pocket, some inanimate object. This was the lifeblood of an animal. And yet as we know from the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And the reason that the sacrifices had to be repeated year after year after year was that they could never take away sin. They were not truly sufficient. And if truth be told, these Old Testament sacrifices were really signposts. They were pointing forward to a greater and final sacrifice and ransom that would be paid and made. A greater lamb. A sufficient sacrifice. Even Jesus himself, who you remember John the Baptist, referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John even understood that the ransom price would be Jesus himself and even the very blood of Jesus. In him, says the writer to the Ephesians, we have redemption through his blood. Some of you I know like the music of Johnny Cash. Someone has to. Uh, he, he wrote a, a song a few years ago called Redemption. From the hands it came down, he wrote. From the side it came down. From the feet it came down and ran to the ground. Between heaven and hell, a teardrop fell in the deep crimson dew. The tree of life grew. And the blood gave life to the branches of the tree. And the blood was the price that set the captives free and the numbers that came through the fire and the flood clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood. This is what Jesus himself said that he had come to do. He said that he came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom was his blood. That was the price that we, if we are Christians, were bought with. Let me just say two brief things about this. This precious blood. This morning, if you came here, round the Lord's table, we focused on that aspect. Let me first of all say something about the preciousness of the blood. Of course, all ransom prices were costly. That's the idea. They involve a price, a cost. 
And in the Old Testament, it was either your precious money or it was your precious animal, which had to be given. But this ransom price is especially precious. It is not money. It is not an animal, an animal's blood. It is the blood of a man. And more than a man, it is the blood of the God-man, God's only Son. And it is precious also in the sense, not only because of who it flows from, but also because he is the Lamb who is perfect and without blemish. That's why it's so precious. The Apostle Peter writes, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers. Money's nothing, says Peter. Silver and gold is nothing. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Do you know that the blood of Jesus is precious beyond all money, beyond all riches that you could ever accumulate? Because you see, it buys something that money can't buy. The freedom of your soul. Brings me to the second point, the preciousness of the blood. Secondly, the power of the blood. We sometimes sing in this church that there is power. Power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. What do we mean by that? It's easy to sing it. That there's power in the blood. What we simply mean is that the blood of Jesus has the capacity. It has the power to purchase our redemption. It actually achieves our liberty. It's not ineffective like the blood of bulls and goats. Indeed, it has such power to save that if we have faith in this blood, the Bible guarantees we will be redeemed and restored to a right relationship with God, period. Romans 3, 23-5 says this, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've seen this already. We've all sinned. We're therefore slaves to sin. But listen to this. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And now we're asking, how did this redemption happen? How was it achieved by Christ Jesus? Read on. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is to save. If you believe in His death, if you believe in His sacrifice, it is enough to free you from your sin and guilt. It is altogether sufficient. And let me add, nothing else, nothing else can redeem you from your sin and guilt before God. No money, no other blood, no other sacrifice, no other attempt of your own to curry favor with God. There was a gentleman here a few weeks ago at the door. He might even be here tonight, I don't know. He put something in my hand. I didn't know what it was. I opened my hand. It was a pound coin. I said, what's this for? He said, that is for my penance. And I said to him, well, surely this isn't enough. We need the grace of God. And he said, we can't be sure of such things. 
We can. Not because of some whimsical, fanciful notion, but because we have the power of the blood of Jesus to pay the price for our sin. That's what we're banking on for heaven. Have you put your faith in that blood? Have you trusted in the death of Christ for your sin? It's the only thing that can atone for every person here tonight. It's the price paid for our redemption from slavery. And as a result, if you have been redeemed, and I imagine that's a great many people here this evening, there are implications for us. Which brings us to the third point of this, an obligation owed. I guess you can't have missed this week that Britain has a new prime minister, uh, that the country has come under new management in Gordon Brown and a new cabinet which in many respects has now a degree of power over us as a country and as citizens. You know, for the Christian too, when we are redeemed, we come under new management, a new boss. We are no longer slaves to sin anymore, but we are now, and Paul especially frequently spoke about this, we're slaves to God. We're not possessed by sin anymore. We are God's possession. It's a pleasant kind of slavery. We know this. Jesus said that if we come to him, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. But nevertheless, there is an obligation to serve Jesus as our new master. Just the other week I heard a, a talk about the life of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was a, a missionary to India, latterly. And one of the things she focused on was freeing slave girls who in various very unfortunate institutions had been enslaved and when they either got free or they helped get them out, they would bring them into their home and she developed this huge ministry caring for these children. And you know, all the children loved her in, in that home. It was a very poignant picture. It, it was of these very elderly ladies now, and a very, very elderly lady, which was Amy Carmichael, and these were the first women who she had brought into the home who were now working for Amy Carmichael and were serving the children who were coming in themselves. You see, they were there because they had a sense of obligation. They could, they could never pay Amy back. But nevertheless, it was an expression of their thankfulness that they came and they worked with her and for her. So too, the Christian should have this oughtness. There's a, a sense in which we owe God our lives. And I want to suggest three aspects of this, because it's easy just to generalize. So let's be very particular about this. First of all, we owe God our bodies. In fact, the verses I read at the outset made that very plain. That's the context. You have been bought at a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. Why does Paul say that? Honour God with your bodies. It's because Paul is addressing in that passage the issue of sexual sin in the church in Corinth. These uh, Christians, or at least some of them, were living their lives without distinction from the world in terms of sexual ethics. Even some of the men thought it was permissible to sleep with prostitutes and the like. 
But what could possibly bring conviction to a believer who is doing such a thing? What doctrine will Paul use to compel them to a different way? Well, Paul's answer is redemption. He reminds them, he says, you are not your own. He says, you were bought with a price. He says that God is your master and therefore God owns your body. In fact, the price that Jesus paid when he spilled his blood, one of the things that it redeemed was your body. Not just your soul, but your body. Jesus bought it. Jesus didn't just buy, you know, to save your soul. He also died to save your body that one day when Jesus returns, we'll be finally and fully redeemed. We're awaiting the redemption of our bodies. I bet you didn't realize that the doctrine of redemption was so practical. This has to be at the forefront of our battle against sexual sin in a day and age where it is such a difficult battle. We need to remember, Christ redeemed my body. And the Holy Spirit has now been given And he lives within us. We are now temples of the Spirit, redeemed by Jesus' blood. So firstly, we owe God our bodies. Maybe that's a challenge to some Christian here particularly. You're not laying this down to God at the moment. In addition, secondly, we owe God our minds. God not only wants the allegiance of our bodies, but the attention of our minds. A very positive example of this, of course, is found in Romans chapter 12. Now, you remember how Romans is split into two halves. There's a huge uh, opening section, which is doctrinal, it's truths about Jesus and God. And then there's 12 onwards, which is ethical, how to behave. And in this large previous section, Paul has been reflecting on God's astounding mercy. The immense grace of God in giving Jesus to be our sacrifice. To gain our redemption. And so as he begins in chapter 12, he opens up with this foundation to what he's going to say. He writes in verse 1, In view of God's mercies, therefore I urge you. Now, notice the two things that he highlights in these verses. In view of what Jesus has done in dying for your sin, listen to this. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So, there's the first thing we've already seen. Jesus redeemed us. We have to honor God with our bodies. Secondly, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul's not forgotten what he's just said. This is also on the basis of of God's mercy through Christ. And he says, give God your mind. Give God your brain. Give God the way that you think and allow him to reshape it and remold it. See, Paul understands that the way that we think is very important. Sometimes we don't grasp this. You know, sometimes folks say, why is doctrine important? Why do we need all this hard thinking about our faith? Well, one answer, of course, is that the way that we behave flows from what we believe. But another answer is that Jesus paid the immense cost of dying in our place to redeem our minds and renew our minds. Before we were believers, our minds were darkened to the truth of God's gospel. Now we have been set free. 
And now God wants us to take every thought captive in the honour of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the chief problems of the redeemed people in the Old Testament, Israel, was that they so often put their brains out of gear. They so often forgot what God had done. They didn't reflect on it. In Psalm 78, it's a negative example. It talks about how they did not remember His power the day He redeemed them from the oppressor. They just didn't think about it very much. And God was displeased. There's a book I read a, a couple of years ago. It's called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. written by a guy called Mark Knoll. And it's a big tome. It's a difficult read. But I'll sum it up for you. Basically his point is evangelical Christians don't use their minds enough. That's a general statement. But God died to redeem our minds. That they might be renewed. Thirdly, here's the third thing. Our bodies... Our minds, our hearts. Christianity is not merely cognitive. It should be affectional. There can be superficial emotion, that's true. Uh, There can be some who can bounce up and down and sing all about redemption with not the foggiest clue as to what they're singing about. And this doesn't honor God, of course. But on the other hand, it is equally possible to have a sort of short-circuited emotion. To understand lots of information about redemption and not have it filter through into our emotion, into our praise, into our worship. Some of us need to send the message from our heads into our hearts, which will therefore spill it forth onto our lips. What a role model, how about Zechariah? He understood that the time of Jesus coming to redeem a people for himself, had arrived. And we read in Luke one sixty seven that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What's he doing? He's singing. He's praising God for his redemption. I wonder if we could get some of these friends here to just teach us a little bit about how to do that. A little more expressively, perhaps. You say, I'm not wired emotionally. Well, we all have emotions. God's given us something there. Let's use it to the measure that we have it. Based upon the truths of God's Word. The psalmist said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He was talking about the expression of their hearts and their lips. Now this brings us to the end of our study this evening. And when it all boils down to it, it's very plain, is it not, that God has worked a remarkable redemption for us. And the question is very simply this, are we living in light of that redemption? Have we ever come to Christ for freedom? Or are we still enslaved? And if so, if we have, Are we living like we are free? With our minds, with our bodies, with our hearts. Such a tragedy when Christ has redeemed people by His blood that they don't live in that freedom. Preachers uh, sometimes tell a story of a Frenchman 
named Louis Delcourt. And this was a young French soldier who served during the First World War. He had overstayed his leave, and uh, he felt disgraced about this, so he decided to desert. Well, his mother, as mothers do, put him up and hid him in the loft of her house. And in that attic, she fed him for over 21 years. 21 years and a little bit. But in 1937, his mother died. And so there was really no option for him but to stagger down to the nearest police station and blow his cover and hand himself in. And the police officer looked at him, utterly incredulous. He said, where have you been that you haven't heard? He said, what are you talking about? Haven't heard what? That a law of amnesty for deserters was passed years ago. He says, you're free to go. Brothers and sisters, freedom was made available for us 2,000 years ago on the cross. Are we living in light of this? What a sad thing. If we had redemption on offer, but had never come to accept it, or even worse perhaps, to know about it, and yet fail to live in light of it, may it not be so of us. May we trust in the redeeming blood of Christ, and then give our bodies, and give our minds and give our hearts as a living sacrifice to God. Let's pray.